The Worker Learner Podcast is brought to you by the Professional Learning Hub, Griffith University's platform for executive and professional education. Bringing together the expertise of Griffith University's academics and research centres, our professional learning is designed to deliver creative solutions for the workplace of tomorrow. Whether you are looking for opportunities for yourself or your team, we have you covered. My name is Donna Pendergast and I'll be your host for this episode of The Worker Learner. I'm a professor at Griffith University and I'm currently the Director of Engagement for the Arts, Education and Law Group. My field is education and I recently completed 14 years as Dean and Head of School. My expertise is in school reform and student engagement, especially social and emotional wellbeing. My guest today is the much-loved sporting and media personality, Joanna Griggs. After a successful sporting career where she medalled at the Commonwealth Games and the World Championships, Joanna diversified and forged a career as a television presenter, a career that has so far spanned 30 years. From better homes and gardens to hosting eight Olympics and three Paralympics and several Commonwealth Games and 17 years of the Australian Open and Summer of Tennis, there's probably no one in Australia who hasn't caught one of her shows. (laughs) She has been a director on the board of Beyond Blue for nine years and five years ago, Joanna stepped into the role of chairperson of the National Advisory Council of BU, the National Mental Health in Education Initiative delivered by Beyond Blue in collaboration with Early Childhood Australia and Headspace. And we'll be talking about this and wellbeing as a theme in this Worker Learner podcast. Joanna, welcome. Thank you very much. So, Joanna, you've had an impressive and diverse career. Uh, It'd be great to go back to when you made the decision to transition to television. (laughs) What was that like? When did you do that? How did you make that decision? So it's 30 years ago this month. I'm talking to you in March. uh, And it came purely because I hit the wall and made a decision to retire. Um, I swam in an era where, you know, we had a big chip on our shoulders. We used to have to go constantly overseas. So as a result, had virtually no secondary education. Only had a couple of months of secondary education in total. I think we've thankfully changed that approach in you know, the last couple of decades to, to teach athletes how important their education is. Um, and I remember talking to my mum and saying to her, oh, mum, I'm going to announce my retirement and just hearing her voice a couple of octaves higher than it usually was. And she just said, oh, really, darling, well, you know, what, what is it that you're going to do? And I said, oh, I might give this media thing a crack. I now understand 30 years on that that's obviously what every pretty much every athlete says, uh, they all dream it will happen. They get very few opportunities. I, I know how um, have a, very few people get the chance to even get their foot in the door and how even less of those people get to have a, a career that's lasted as long as, as it has and with the diversity that it has. So within 24 hours of announcing that retirement, I had three network contract offers on the table wow. from 7, 9 and 10 and chose Channel 7 because they promised training. Wow, that's that's absolutely awesome. Yeah. And look, what skills did you have to learn along the way to make that transition effective? All of them, to be perfectly honest. I mean, I knew absolutely nothing. I I still work today. My cameraman on Better Homes and Gardens is the cameraman that shot my first piece to camera at the back of Channel 7 in Epping in, in New South Wales. Um, I did not know what I was doing. I The one thing you learn about television is I learned that they say anything to get you to sign a contract, but in actual fact, they lie through their teeth as soon as you sign that contract. <laughs> 
<laughs> there was no training. Uh, the training was basically through public humiliation on air. Um, and, you know, I, I started off as a reporter. My very first major gig was actually hosting the Australian Open Tennis. I'd never seen an auto queue. I was literally so green and so awkward that I remember just reading, you know, at that stage reading somebody else's words and uh, and it just didn't come out right and I just sort of said what I'd say in a conversation. I, you know, bumbled over it and said, oh, gosh, I think, um, I think I'll start that again and then down my earpiece. The producer's like, what did you just say? You can't do that. You can never say that on air. And I was so green I actually answered him on air. So you can oh. imagine for the viewer at home, they would have just been looking at going, what is this girl doing? Um, and it used to frustrate me because as an athlete you have a coach Coach tells you what what's good, what's mm-hmm. you know what's working, what's not working. You have a great ability to be able to handle criticism because you see it as a way to improve yourself. You can leave the bad stuff behind. I, I kept saying to them, just somebody tell me the rules of television, and I I won't make the same mistakes. But I just need to know what are the boundaries because that's what you do as an athlete. You know, mm. you work on times or you work on things that you're improving. I knew I was disciplined. I knew that I would dedicate my time to it. I was, you know, I knew I could be um, had great time management. I knew I had all these fantastic skills that sport had given me. Even things like. I can sleep on cue Um, and in those early days when you're doing the terrible shifts and all the weekend shifts and, you know, you're learning how to chase stories and get contacts when you had absolutely no contact books available and, you know, that was actually really important. I'd sleep in cars, I'd sleep under my desk at work Um, and so funnily enough I think all those skills that sport taught me actually ended up being the things that, you know, that I would go and say, tell me put a tape on, show me what I'm doing incorrectly. You know, the public humiliation, ironically, when I look back, is actually a pretty good way to learn because you make a lot of mistakes, you don't necessarily make the same mistakes twice. But I'm glad I did it in the era where there wasn't social media because I don't think I don't think they would give people that opportunity to make as many mistakes as I did. That's really interesting. Joe. You, you said that within 24 hours you had yeah. three contracts. That's impressive. What do you think they saw in you? I honestly have no idea, particularly when you see how bad I was. <laughs> so, I mean, I guess I, they probably knew that I loved to talk and that I that I love people and inherently I, I honestly believe that um, there's good in people everywhere and, and certainly in sport, which is where I started out in those first few years, um, you know, sport is generally telling really positive stories and even mm. if there's stories where somebody goes off the rails, there's generally a story of redemption. Mm. And so if you have an ability to tell a story, if you have an ability to get uh, the people that you're speaking to to relax quickly and you have a very short space of time to get them to trust you uh, maybe they saw something in that and and I also was a quick learner because I I knew I had to be I, I guess I didn't have a traditional education but I was fairly street smart and knew how to hustle a little bit and you know I drive my bosses absolutely bonkers and it drives me crazy in television that they still don't teach people when they come mm. in I still see people coming in without any training and and they they let them you know trip up on air whereas I spend my life just mentoring people and sharing information and sharing research because I figured there's enough work for everyone um, and you actually have a much better product and you save a lot of angst for a lot of people if you if you actually help them. But it's still not television's biggest strong point. Wow, very interesting. Most people have the perception that you retired because you were ill. Is that the case? Yes, yeah, so prior to that, so I retired at 19, mm-hmm. but prior to that at 17 I was really, really sick and I think uh, upon a lot of reflection it was, um, your, one, the amount of travelling, two, I had a childhood, so I had parents who really believed that balance was, was very important and wouldn't let me go and do a 1,000 sessions at a really young age. So that when I actually made the Australian team at 14 and all of a sudden you know, I travelled the world 17 times by the time I was 17 um, and if you so much to sneeze, we were given antibiotics and 
eventually after World Champs, when I slowed down, my entire system shut down. So, um, to you know, it taught me a lot because, you know, I had a lot of sponsors at that point. I was earning quite good money. Um, as soon as we worked out it wasn't a quick fix, all the sponsors dropped off. After that initial flush of people coming to see me, um, I learned that human nature is quite fascinating, that when people don't understand what it is that they're seeing, you haven't got a quick solution for them. They feel awkward. They don't know what to say. So they just choose to stay away. So that period was... For two and a half years, I had a wheat-free, yeast-free, egg-free, corn-free, malt-free, sugar-free, beef-free, dairy-free, herbs-free, spice-free, caffeine-free diet. Was there's then, not much left. No, there's not much, but I still had to be careful as to what I would actually combine on my plate. Wow. Um, the amount of hours training became treatments, and, and they ranged from, you know, traditional treatments to complementary treatments. Um, it was an incredibly lonely time. Like, I really had to had to get used to being in my company and I had to really resolve the fact that I had to learn to like myself otherwise it would have been a disastrous period of my life. I slept with a heart rate monitor on um, 24 hours a day so that if I'd had a rest we could actually see when I woke up internally what was happening with my body Um, and that was a great way for us to be able to measure it. And then during that period they changed the backstroke turns. I was a backstroker and so they changed it from the old you'd hit a wall, turn your body around and push off to now that you see it they're almost roll over mm, and do a freestyle mm. type turn. So I'd been doing that when I you know, eventually got back in the pool mm-hmm. and it was all under, you know, very watchful eyes of a lot of doctors and there's a lot of research that was going on around it. Um, and basically I woke up one day when I had to race and I, I knew I needed to, to actually practice those turns in a race. Woke up, all the signs, every indication we had was that something was happening inside my body, don't do it. I weighed up the wrist, decided I wanted to race and a week later was in hospital with pleurisy. So that kind of like I felt like I went two steps forward and one step back for for that entire two years. I went away from swimming completely. I didn't even look at a pool for six months and then it was actually against doctor's orders but my coach and I felt that if we we changed the training and made it less – um, you know, we were in that era where as a sprinter you'd do as much training as an open water swimmer did. So it, he was really the first person to change it to be explosive training and, and specific training and, you know, working on those underwater skills and, and all the things that they actually do now as the sport science has become mm. such a huge part of the sport. And we were sort of at the, the front end of that. And uh, and so when I, funnily enough, when I retired that day, I hit the wall with the fastest time in the, the year at that stage. It was only March, so most of us go, hee <laughs> when I say that. But I always say, like, I hit the wall and Australians to me thought I was back, whereas I absolutely knew that I was done living such a restricted life. I just wanted to see what life could be like without all of those parameters of, of what it took to get back to that point. So I always say to people, if you want to retire, it's nice to retire when you're number one in the world. Um but to be honest, it, it had been a, a very, very up and down, uh, frustrating couple of years to that point. What a story. Well, <laughs> turning to the idea of well-being, which you've ex- you've really shared <laughs> so much about your well-being there, as a sports person, as someone constantly in the public eye, so people are seeing you in all sorts of different places now, what do you think of uh, well-being is? You know, what's your understanding of well-being and how have you taken care of your well-being across not only that part of your career but these last 30 years? Well, to be honest, that, that period of my life has shaped the 30 years. Okay. I mean, I, I still know and look after myself really well. I know I need to exercise. I know uh, I need to look after my diet. I know sleep for me is absolutely key. So I, I'm really, really disciplined with those things. But also it's about balance. So for me, well-being is I need to be surrounded by nature. So I need to be surrounded by animals. I've got cows and bees and dogs and my eyes rest on green. I grow 85% of our veggies so I know that what we're eating is chemical-free and the very best version of what we can get. Um, 
what I was lucky through swimming that I had a coach who, if you were struggling or overwhelmed, he would encourage you to speak to a sports psychologist. So I, I did that all throughout my career. And that's something I've carried on post-career. And I'm grateful for it because I was just I was I was just kind of taught that your mental health is as important as your physical health. And so even now to this point, if there's ever a period of my life where I'm feeling overwhelmed or I just feel like my thoughts aren't as clear as they should be or I'm not finding the clarity in the, the, the toolkit that I have, I will go and speak to someone and I find it enormously helpful. And, you know, they're not necessarily telling you what to do, but it helps it helps clear the fog, I say, to people. So I'm really, um, really big on that, which I, I remember saying that at the launch of BU and people just going, are you having to talk about seeing a psychologist? I just never grew up with the stigma that that was something wrong. To me, I saw it as yet another tool in my kit of to how to make sure that I could be in the best possible version of myself. That's amazing. So if is there a time that you can share with us when things weren't perhaps working out so well? <laughs> and professionally and yeah. how did you overcome it well to be honest in media you have to expect it's not going to work fabulously right. well the whole time and I, I I've talked about it a lot but um a couple of years into my contract with seven I had um a baby at home I was on maternity leave pregnant with my second baby which they didn't realize at that point um and I was going through a very public breakdown of a marriage um and yeah during that period I got axed by facts um, whilst oh. on maternity leave. So it was a huge story in its own, which ended up being a fantastic factor for me to be able to negotiate a great deal many, many years later. Um, but what it forced me to do was go outside of my comfort zone. So up until then, I'd only ever worked in sport and I had to have an income coming in. So I all of a sudden worked for absolutely any anyone and everyone who still fit my, I guess, ethical boundaries that I had mm-hmm. and what I choose, but who um, challenged me to get out. So all of a sudden I was doing Melbourne comedy festivals and, oh, wow. you know, po- political satirical shows and just <laughs> literally the most random selection of things. And then you cut to a year later, I had a six-month-old and an 18-month-old and by that point the marriage had disintegrated and I was going through a divorce and things hadn't quite um, you know, reconcile themselves financially because our financial situation changed and I was in a position where my car was taken away even though I had these little babies and the bank had let me know that they were coming to reclaim the house. And so at that stage, Brian Walsh, who recently just passed away, was the head of Foxhill and an amazing man. He had been asking me to sign a one-year contract with Foxhill and I knew a one-year contract wouldn't appease the banks. And so I remember ringing him back and saying, look, you know that what you're offering is a very cheap deal for what, what I can give you but I actually need longer than that. That's not going to keep the banks away. If you can, I need a two-year contract. I'd love a little bit more money if you can. And if you do, and if I can get that by five o'clock this afternoon, I promise I will work my butt off for you. And he did. So it meant I could move back home with my parents, rent the house out, keep the house, and and then gradually forge um, a new a new life as a single mum. And the funny thing with that was it was the first ever contract between pay TV and free to air. So Foxtel was starting out back then, so they were quite happy for me to do anything as long as I was Foxtel's own, Joanna Griggs. So you know, we used to do a live broadcast when the 500th house connected to Foxtel and you know, all these things. And, and then I distinctly remember this period where I was working for them and they negotiated with Channel 7 for me to be released. They could make an announcement that I was doing the Olympic Games in Sydney. I was going to be hosting, co-hosting the breakfast show with Andrew Daddo. Uh, and they were allowed to announce it a year out and then they weren't allowed to do anything until three weeks out from the Games and then for that three weeks before and the three weeks duration of the Games, I became exclusively Channel 7s. Had the most extraordinary experience of my life uh, co-hosting that breakfast program and then from the second that finished, it, it started a negotiation war again, war between Channel 9, Channel 7 and Fox Hill and I made the decision to go back to Channel 7 at the start of 2001. What an amazing story. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> 
So being an athlete, uh, working as a television presenter, you've talked about teams of people there. So what is it that you do to support the teams of people around you and their well-being? Well, I'm very conscious that I'm in a probably a slightly different position to a lot of the people that I work with. I'm a big believer that you know, teamwork is television. It, it, it's it in a nutshell. I've seen a lot of people who've come in and who actually um, forget very often that they, they think they're bigger than the person who, you know, is in charge of the lights or the audio or the cameras. And in actual fact, I say to people, if you don't respect the person with even the smallest job, at some point that will catch up with you. Mm-hmm. But I also advocate for the people who might not have a network contract like I do. I'm very fortunate with that. Um, and so I will go in and fight for people if conditions aren't great or if, you know, their working environment's not great or, or if there's bad behaviour, I won't walk past bad behaviour. Um, I've never been any different. I think it sometimes surprises the public when they find out that sort of thing. But as far as the bosses, I've always had that relationship with them. Um, and I still have really weird conversations in television. Like I think the two that stand out for me, I'd worked on a reality show, which I just absolutely hated and had tried to change for several years. And, um, and each year was promised it would be different. And when I finally worked out, look, it was never going to be different. I remember an executive sitting me down and saying, look, we're changing the direction next year. It's going to be confrontational and we're going for more controversy and, and nastiness. And I believe that you actually think you have too much integrity to be involved with that. And I just burst out laughing and I said, well, that's extraordinary. I've never actually heard integrity used as an insult. And I said, but by the way, you're right. So this will be the time that I step away. And then even more recently, uh, um, an executive just a couple of years ago who said to me, we, we want to do all this going forward, but all we want are all the good bits of you. We want you to be the person who creates a happy team environment, who looks out for her peers, who you know shares all your work and, and mentors the young ones. But what we don't want is for you to call out my bad behaviour. And I laughed and I said, well, here's another way to look at it. Why don't you stop behaving badly and oh, I'll never have to call, call it out anymore. So I, sometimes I think television's come a long way and other times I look at those moments and think, I still can't believe we have to have those conversations. That's amazing. It looks to us like you're having a lot of fun yeah. when you're a television presenter. And so you must look after your well-being particularly well during those times. Well, I look after it because I'm, I'm fortunate I only work with people I love. Mm-hmm. I only work on shows that are positive. So the great thing about Better Homes is you're only ever celebrating people and, and generally in sport you're celebrating athletes' amazing, mm-hmm. you know, performances. So it's very hard. If you couldn't enjoy some of the experiences we get, the people we get to meet, the places we get to go, that you're in the wrong industry <laughs> because it is an absolute privilege. And the amount of times my husband's a builder, I come home and tell him what I've done and he He's like, that is not a real job. Like, I've been bricks and a skip in all day. That's a real job. <laughs> well, Joe, um, one of the things you're doing at the moment yep. is you're the chairperson of the National Advisory Council of BU. Yep. Can you tell us a little bit about BU, please, and your role yep. in it? Okay, so BU is the National Education Initiative in Early Learning Services and Schools. And it's an online resource that provides, you know, toolkits and guides to help educators and early learning service leaders so they can create the most resilient, positive, inclusive, productive, responsive whole school communities. And as a result of that, when when you have a whole school community that's working towards the same end goal, which it means that every child, that every young person, that every educator, we have a huge focus on educator wellbeing. That's one of the things that BU is is absolutely known for and needs to keep working in that space. Um, It's action, you know, team leaders at schools, it's parents, it's families who they're engaging with. It, It gives them the opportunity to achieve their very best mental health. So, um, look, it's available to pretty much everyone, but it's in, you know, pre-service educators, it's uh, people doing vocational training, it's 
educators who are currently in early learning services and schools, I think we're in over 13,000 schools and early learning services as we currently speak. It's for anyone who, who actually wants to help create that positive, inclusive environment. And, you know, we've come a long way in a very short space of time. People can work through, the, you know, there's like five pillars of, I guess, main things that we oversee. And then off that, there's modules that they can work through. But very different to a lot of things that are available is, is the naught to 18. So that early year focus, we know any mental health condition, if you can have early intervention and recognise the signs and take the right steps, it's huge, but particularly in that early age. And um, so that's that's the difference with it. And if anyone is actually working their way through the modules, they don't have to start a linear type program so they can actually go in, they can actually look at what works so they can, I guess, fine tune it to what their specific school or early learning service needs. Fantastic. How did you get to be chairperson of BU? <laughs> uh, so I've been on the board, as you mentioned, of Beyond Blue for nine years and um, Jeff Kennett was our founder, so he was our uh, original chairman and then we had Julia Gillard who came on who's extremely passionate about mental health and extremely passionate about education. And I, I was there for all the first original discussions when um, the government had first asked for people to put proposals in and I got the shock of my life when Georgie Harmon and Julia, Julia sat down and said, we think you're the right board member to take it through. I mean, I hadn't finished high school. I, I had, you know, I, I knew the people that they were looking for to have around the council. So you have, you know, representatives of education and health from every state and territory in the Commonwealth. You have all these people who are experts in implementation and strategy and research and all these beautiful brains around the table. And I'm thinking, how on earth can I possibly have any input here? And I remember Julia said, you don't have to be the expert. You've just got to be the person who gets the experts to speak and, and ties it back in and keeps it on time. And I absolutely love our council days. It's amazing how much it's evolved over the five years. We have, I mean, you're part of our beautiful council, Donna. Um, we have so, representatives pretty much from every single state. And, and once the ideas start flowing, you have people bouncing off each other. And they're the days that I go home where I'm so excited and so inspired that that I almost can't sleep. They're the only nights I struggle to get to sleep because you just feel so energised by, by what we're doing and, and how far we've come and the impact we can potentially have. Fantastic. If you could wave a magic wand, <laughs> we love magic wands, um, what would you do to enhance the well-being of Australian children? Oh, gosh. Well, I think we're doing it, to be perfectly honest. I mean, the, the original lofty goal that we had was to create this mentally healthy generation. Um, and I think, you know, I think about our parents or our grandparents and, you know, that whole ridiculous attitude of being stoic or servicemen and servicewomen who came back from wars and never received help for the trauma that they'd seen. The difference when I talk to children already these days, they're so much more aware of the importance of their mental health. And, you know, our goal is to educate them and the teachers and the, the early learning service leaders to be able to spot those signs and be able to help them with toolkits and, and you know, I guess early intervention so that they can actually take control because they're going to, they're all like resilience. It's going to be, they're going to get knocked down in life. Life isn't easy for anyone the whole way through. But the difference is I think if we have this entire generation of children who know what to do before it gets to crisis point and they will impart that to their peers, they'll impart that to their families, they'll impart that to younger children coming through, it actually means the whole scope of Australia and how we approach mental health will be in a very different space to where it is now. Great. So finally, Joe, what are you most proud of in your career? And what's next for you? Uh, to be honest, I'm I'm proud of lots of things. Like I this first few minutes, I break 30 seconds in backstroke. So I look at that. I'm yep. proud of how I handled my illness, proud of how I handled my comeback, how I left 
swimming. I'm proud most of all, like I became first female solo host of an Olympic Games coverage in Australia. Wow. So there was all these little weird things and had proud moments where I received an honorary doctorship or an AM at those letters behind my name, which is in recognition for, you know, services to swimming, to media, to charity fundraising and uh, to public health when you combine them both. They're all great things. But I think the thing I'm most proud of, apart from the work I do with Beyond Blue and BU, is that I've always done that where it's fit my personal morals and I've done it with integrity. And in those awkward moments sometimes because when you when you raise things that are slightly uncomfortable for people um, and, and you're raising issues, it doesn't always make you the most popular person. But I, I've always stayed really solid to, to that, to how I choose to live my life and what boundaries I set in place and what I'm willing to do and not do. And I think because of it I've, I've been able to put my head on a pillow every night and, and sleep very peacefully. Fantastic. Joe. thanks for sharing your story on the Worker Learner series. It's been absolutely fantastic <laughs> Thank to hear. You. Thank you. And you've shared so much. I, I'm sure that your mother, when the, the, <laughs> you know, the couple of octaves higher response when you said you were retiring, she couldn't be more proud of all of the things that you've achieved and sharing those with us has been really sensational. You know, you're a television icon in Australia. Um, you've been willing to share your story with us. We really appreciate it. And the way I see it, that really gives, it contributes to community well-being. So thank you so much for joining us today in this series. Thank you very much. My mum, who is, you know, was a school teacher for over 30 years, I'm one of four children and she always says to me, it's amazing because you're actually the underachiever of the family. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Jack. You're welcome. Thank you. The Worker Learner Podcast was brought to you by the Professional Learning Hub, Griffith University's platform for executive and professional education.